I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with Deborah Rodman. Deborah Rodman is currently the Democratic member of the Virginia House of Delegates, a seat she won in 2017, and it was her first time running for office. And she was moved, of course, to run for office after the Trump election, like so many women I've talked to. And now she's running for the Senate in Virginia. And if you've been following the down-ballot races, you'd know that Virginia is one of the most important states in terms of shifting the balance of power to favor Democrats and, of course, to flip the Senate. This is a really important race, and it's happening this year. Deborah Rodman's election is on November 5th, 2019. That's in just a few weeks. So I really wanted to talk to Deborah before her election. We talk about the state of politics in Virginia, reproductive rights, reducing gun violence. And the thing that I love the most about this interview is that Deborah Rodman pulls the curtains off of the process of running for office. And she's also really generous with advice for other women who are considering running for office. So here is my conversation with Deborah Rodman. Deborah Rodman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. So you are running for the Senate in Virginia. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But you first ran for the House of Delegates there, and and you won against yeah. a Republican incumbent. Was that your first race? It was the first race I, I'd ever run. And it was, you know, what an experience. I'll tell you, I, I think similar to you, I think you started your podcast after the Trump election. Yep. And there were many of us, you know, after the Trump election who ended up at the march like I did, and then also started meeting with other people to sort of say, what are we going to do next? And here in Virginia, I ended up, you know, in a room with a group of people. We were sort of meeting on a regular basis. And in Virginia, we have elections every year. And at one point, Somebody in the room said, well, you know, these are our goals. We're going to do this. But who here will, you know, wants to run for office? And I remembered raising my hand. And there were a bunch of guys in the room who also raised their hand. And, you know, I was the only one who who followed through. And I was lucky enough to be at a college. I'm at Randolph-Macon College where uh, we had had, well, maybe not so lucky, we had an individual who had run for uh, Congress and won a seat against Eric Cantor. And I, I, I actually, the seat that I'm in now is Eric Cantor's old seat. And uh, he ran for office and won. And then my colleague in my department ran as a Democrat against him. So I had witnessed two cycles of these elections, one in which I thought, you know, if that's, if this guy can run, anybody can run. And then another cycle where a really brilliant and amazing person ran and didn't win. So I had these examples in front of me, but, you know, never thought it was possible because running for office has always seemed to me, you know, a very closed system, you know, mostly, you know, rich, older white men uh, who know, who've got connections can run. And what was the silver lining about the Trump election was that people came out of the woodwork and started running for office. And when I decided to run for office, um, there were already three people in the race for the primary. And I wasn't even the favorite. I wasn't even the party favorite, but I just, you know, worked. I met others and won the primary, a four-way primary. Yeah. And you did that. I I was reading about it. You raised a ton of money. I think, right? In comparison to your competitor. Yes, yes. Well, no, no. My competitor actually, um, you know, he was a 17-year incumbent. He had polled as the most popular incumbent 
in the Virginia legislature. So I, I got dropped like a hot potato because nobody wanted to support me because they didn't think I could win. But I just worked hard. And, and it wasn't just about me. I mean, this is what happened in Virginia. And then we saw in, in the rest of the country is that people in the community came out of the woodwork. And we just had incredible grassroots coalition uh, to knock doors and help me. But you do. So you still need the money. And I just you know, worked my tail off, but my opponent still had double the amount of money than me. Uh, and I still won by only 800 votes, but I won. Wow. Wow. So, so, you know, I think you told me this before, but I, you just reminded me that you're sitting in Eric Cantor's seat. Like what, what happened to him? I just think that's amazing. I remember (laughs) him. I remember his glasses. I remember him on television. Where is he now? (laughs) Probably in DC lobbying, making tons of money. I, we, we don't really see him around here anymore. What was missed, I think, at least for me, that election in 2017, uh, the House of Delegates, there was a wave election. And I think it was something like 15 Republican seats were flipped or something like that. Yes. 15 Democrats, you know, won in this beautiful blue wave in 2017 in Virginia. And I will tell you, it was you know, historical in the sense that we had the first transgender woman, Danica Rome, get elected, the first lesbian, first Latina women, you know, first Asian American women. Um, You know, it was just, you know, incredible in that sense in terms of like, you know, diversity. But I will tell you that 15 votes, the, uh, the 15 individuals changed the face of the Virginia legislature, literally changed the face. And that first moment when I sat on the floor of the House and looked across the room and to see, you know, that it, it just changed the paradigm, not in terms of identities, but also in terms of like what we're voting on, the the bills that we brought forward. And then, of course, we were able to expand Medicaid and bring over 300,000 people needed insurance and health care. Well, no, you're right. I remember that. I remember Dana's race in the past, you know, 10 years ago, if we flipped any seats or had a wave, you could expect men to replace men. Right? Yes. Like, like cisgender white men replacing other cisgender white men, but they just happen to be in different parties. So you're right, like races like that or like the wave that you had in Virginia, it changes, you know, the face of your leadership and it changes what people who are leading you care about and and the bills and the legislation that they care to change. And I think that's, you know, it's about a diversity of identities, but it's also just a diversity of viewpoints. And that's what I think is the true power shift when we're talking about state legislatures and Congress that, you know, as as, as feminists and, you know, we, we understand this, that, you know, knowledge is power and who produces that knowledge, who produces that legislation and what viewpoints that reflects changes people's lives. And so by bringing in all these incredibly diverse viewpoints, we were able to really progress in terms of the legislation we're bringing forward and have real voices represented. Well, so, but now you're running for Senate, right? And did you have a whole new set of fears moving from the House of Delegates to the Senate? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, we as women running, it is such a a struggle. When I first decided to run, that was a key sort of fear of mine is to, you know, put myself out there and to be vulnerable. And as women, we know that we're critiqued more in terms of what we wear and what we say and what we look like. And it was one thing to run for the House of Delegates. And honestly, my partner, my husband, you know, a long time ago was like, you should run for Senate. You need to run against, you know, my current opponent. And I was like, no way. That is really putting yourself out there. That is a really difficult race. And, 
you know what? I think through this process, it sounds cliche, but you really are empowered by the process. You learn that you know what you're doing. You learn that you can get the work done. And moreover, it's a huge responsibility. Like people are looking to me to to stand up for them. And it wasn't like so much that I was like, oh, I'm going to run for Senate and get to the next level. It was like this, this seat chose me. And I, I almost feel like I, I needed to run out of necessity to make sure that we had somebody at the state Senate level who was truly representing the people of this district. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And I love talking to women like you and women who are at this juncture in their careers going from private life or like you're in academia, you're a professor you know, moving into into government, just vicariously living through this experience with you. I've got butterflies. (laughs) People go from the Senate to the White House. It's kind of a big deal. It it is a big deal. And I've got to say, like, it has been terrifying and empowering and amazing all at the same time. And I will tell you, I have, you know, brought together a team of mostly women are on my team. And to work with, you know, these young women who are absolutely brilliant, we're working together, we've organized an incredible campaign. And it just the pieces have come together that, you know, we can, you know, work together to make sure that we can have a strong campaign. It's not just about the money. It's not just about the finances. It's not just about the volunteers. It's all those pieces together. And this is the most competitive seat in Virginia right now. I am head to head with my opponent in a region that has been trending blue. It's the suburbs of Richmond. So like the rest of the country, It's, you know, college age educated women who are changing the landscape. And one of the big things that we've seen this year that is totally different from two years ago is about gun violence prevention. You know, two years ago, I couldn't even talk about gun violence prevention in my district. And that has completely shifted. And that I think is one of the going to be the big topics. And that's fueled by the moms. It's fueled by the women who want to see that change in their state legislature. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because that's a really hot button issue. Well, all over the country, obviously, but specifically in Virginia. But I do want to talk about this idea of of, you know, women running and, you know, yeah, bring me back to the women running. Definitely. I know. I always want to talk about women running because like I feel like if I'd had this conversation like five years ago, even right the the whole process of moving into politics and running for an office like the Senate or or the House or even the House of Delegates like I feel like it wasn't very transparent like people didn't know how that happened right right I, I didn't mean, know I how it happened yeah, I didn't know exactly. until I ran yeah yeah but the average person and I think that 2016 changed something 2018 changed something when you had all of these orgs like Emily's List in every district and you know all of these orgs Moms Demand Action pushing everyday women women like yourself, academics, right? Like, you know, moms, every, you know, to run for office. And I feel like the curtains were pulled back. And I really love that. Like, I really love this time that we're in right now. Yeah, I feel like with this opportunity for women, it's like the boys club is ending. And I didn't even know what the process was. I, I kind of had some inclination. And um, there's an organization that trains women to, to run Emerge Virginia, of course, Emily's List as well. But, you know, when I decided I was going to run for office, I was invited to a 48 hour training for women. And I drove up to Northern Virginia and, you know, it, I was put at a table, you know, with all these amazing 
amazing women who were running for office and who was sitting at that table, but the majority of the women who would eventually win with me in 2017. And I remembered there was a moment, you know, I still hadn't decided whether I was going to run for office or not. I was still trying to decide. And there was a moment where I looked across the table at these women who were also running for office. And I remembered thinking, oh my gosh, these women, they're interesting, they're dynamic, they're professionals, they're moms, they're just like me. And it was the moment where I decided to run for office. And that has really been, you know, the transformation, I think, of our political system for women to have the opportunity to run for office. And since we've run for office, you know, we're doing the door knocking, we're getting out there because we have to to get people to vote for us. And I think with everything going on at the national level, people now care about their local elections. Talk about intersections. It's the intersection of women running for office and the intersection of people caring and and needing to know what's going on at the local and state level, because that's where we're going to resist what's going on at the national level. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, another reason I like I like you and I like your candidacy or the idea of your candidacy is because you're an academic. And we were talking about that offline. What's your area of expertise? What's your academic focus? Well, I'm an anthropologist and I'm also a women's studies professor, and I have spent the past two decades working in Central America and Guatemala, looking at the impacts of immigration on economic development. And on top of that, I serve as an expert witness. So I, I'm, you know, have the opportunity to use my expertise as an anthropologist to write reports and affidavits on behalf of women fleeing, women and children fleeing domestic violence, LGBT individuals fleeing hate crimes from Central America uh, to get political asylum in federal court. I just want to emphasize that because I did read that about you. So if you're listening to this, anyone listening to this podcast, just stop for a moment and think about what Deborah Wadman did and in her private life. She was an expert with for federal refugee cases, right? For women and children fleeing domestic violence. Like just think about having someone like that in leadership. Like that just kind of blows me away. Well, you know, and everybody, a lot of people are just learning about what's going on in Central America and at the border, you know, just because now it's in the news for the past couple of years. But those of us and, you know, in, in this field and the field that I work in have been studying this for two decades. And to have that like holistic perspective about those dynamics and what's going on with, uh, you know, immigrant po- and refugee populations, it, it just is, you know, in our changing demographics in our country, you know, I'm just so blessed to be able to bring that knowledge uh, to the state legislature. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. your race and your opponent. Why 
does Virginia, I mean, I know why, but just tell everybody, like, why does Virginia need you versus your your opponent right now? Well, I think, you know, number one, like I spoke before, I, you know, I bring in, you know, the perspective as a professor and a mom for a living. I, I as an anthropologist, I work with people. I think anthropologists make great legislatures because my academic field is about, you know, using people's lived experiences to create theory, I think, to create better legislation. But, you know, I like I mentioned before, I felt like I was really pulled into this race because my opponent has, is just a, a real dangerous record. She's an OBGYN, just, just wait for it, who does <laughs> not support women's reproductive access. She also has an A rating from the NRA, and she, for a long time, opposed Medicaid expansion, which with this great blue wave, that's what was at last after years and years of fighting this battle, we were able to give access to uh, of healthcare to hundreds of thousands of people in Virginia. So we couldn't be more different. And I think the voters in this district, they have a real choice between the two of us. Yeah, I just... I'm stuck on that OBGYN who doesn't support, you know, reproductive rights. I don't even know how you draw that line logically. I just don't. Does she talk about that openly? No. And, you know, I, I could, you know, spend my time going in circles trying to figure out people's motivations and why they do what they do. I can't really wrap my head around it. She also tried to pull legislation, uh, tried to pull money out of, of our budget, uh, the Virginia state budget, to remove the access to LARCs, which are long acting reversible contraception. It was a pilot program. It is a pilot program for low income women to have access to LARCs. And she tried to pull that money. She did, you know, pull that money from the budget. Yeah. You know, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I hope you win. Uh, well, you know, and, but, but it's interesting you say that because it was so difficult. You know, I ran in 2017 and you're going to love this. The man I beat two years ago was a physician. And I didn't mean to be this doctor slayer, but, you know, he was a physician who also opposed Medicaid expansion, really came across as, you know, very moderate. But if you looked at his record, sure enough, he always voted along party lines, pretty right. And again, I'm running against somebody who really tries to um, carry herself as a moderate. And it's, again, the difficult task to let, well, maybe not so difficult now, but the task to let people know what the record is and so that they can make an informed choice when they're voting. And so, you know, that's my job is to inform the voters. Moreover, I, I will say what's really important about this year is it's an off-off year election. In Virginia, we have elections every year. And they're kind of on a four-year cycle, and we're on the fourth-year cycle. So this year, there's no presidential race. There's no governor's race. I'm the top of the ticket. And so we tend to have lower turnout in off-off-year elections. So it is literally my job to get people excited to come out to vote, to get those numbers up. In 17, you know, we, we brought all these voters out last year. We had the congressional races. We elected Representative Abigail Spamberger, who beat Dave Bratt. That's the guy who beat Eric Cantor. And it took a lot of enthusiasm to win those seats. So we're seeing it again. In 2019, we kind of joke in Virginia that, you know, 
the way Virginia goes, so does the rest of the country, <laughs> like we're the center of the universe. But we are a bellwether state. And so what happens this year, I think all eyes are on Virginia, just like in 2017, you know, can we flip the state legislature? And that's what's up to us this year is we have the opportunity to not just flip the House of Delegates, but to flip the Senate. And my seat is one of those crucial seats to flip the state legislature. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. All eyes are in Virginia for these local races and people should pay attention. In these you know, important state elections like this year, like uh, the state Senate, it's the top of the ticket. And then we're going to have our, our delegates. Then we have school board. We have sheriff. We have board of supervisors. Everything that's going to happen in your community is going to depend on these races. And I really believe that people are more in tune than ever to the importance of their state electeds. And one thing that I have done, and I think a lot of the people in my cohort have done, is made ourselves truly accessible. Like you were mentioning before, it was a closed system. It wasn't transparent. People didn't know if they had an issue that they could just write a letter or make a phone call. And, you know, we can maybe cut through some red tape or help them in ways that they don't realize. That's my job. And, you know, my best bills, speaking of being an academic, like I think the best legislation comes from hearing from the people. I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. If we looked at people's lived experiences, that's where we can find out where the problems are, how we can make real change. And oftentimes it's those who are in power who are getting their voices heard and their legislation heard. We need to hear from the people. And this great wave of resistance is part of that ability to have true representation. You know, I really hope Virginia is a bellwether. I actually believe that. But it's really interesting that, you know, if you thought about the, the number of seats that you flipped in 2017 and thinking about past elections, like in my state, for instance, I live in Washington state and we vote by mail. And so what happens with every election, the local newspapers, they'll put out a guide. You know, it's a very progressive state. I live in Seattle. It's a very progressive city. And like these are the progressive candidates that we endorse. Or, you know, here is like a short version, one paragraph version of what they support. I've done this myself in the past. You just kind of check down Democrats. You yeah. just don't you, know, you don't check Republicans. And, and I and the people on the other side, Republicans probably do the same thing, even in states where they don't have vote by mail ballots. Right. Do you feel on the ground, and this must be happening to have flipped that many seats blue in Virginia, that people aren't doing that anymore. They're actually thinking about what are the parties who are in leadership? What are they actually giving us? Do you feel something shifting on the ground? Definitely. I, I don't know if it's just maybe Virginia or the area that I live in, but I'll tell you, I think like a third of my voters are Democrats who are like, I'm about the party. Another third will be like, oh, you know, I'm only voting Republican. But I have a huge swath of people when I'm at their door, they're like, I'm sick of parties. I want to know who you are. So I no longer ask the question, like, what issue do you care about? I'm like, what do you care about when you're voting for a candidate? You know, because I think that really opens people's eyes to think not just about the party, but who they're voting for. Um, on the other hand, too, I also think that people, you know, sometimes are like, well, I'm not sure. Let me check you out. And oftentimes you're like, hey, I know you're a Democratic voter. Just come on, support me. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah. it could, you know, it can go both ways. Um, but in general, I think that people are definitely opening their eyes and really considering the candidates. But then, you know, a lot of people are just working really hard, too. There's a lot of people in my community, they work two or three jobs. They're not going to think about an election, 
you know, until a week before the election. And they might not have even known about the election if I didn't have this massive army of volunteers who are knocking on their doors 20 times to remind them there's an election. And that's the difference between like us and you all in Washington. We are one of the worst states in terms of voter access. So the fact that people get their uh, ballot by mail ahead of time is light years ahead of what we have in Virginia. And that's why we want to flip these seats so badly. Two years in a row, I've had a vote by mail bill that has died, you know, along party lines. And it's even a a bill that would be permissible. It's not even for the whole state. It's like just for localities that want to do it, can't get it passed. Wow. Why? It's amazing. (laughs) It is because I truly believe that if we have better voter access, true voter access in Virginia, then we would see more Democratic wins. They make it very difficult for people to vote in Virginia. And that's why we're trying to flip these seats. Right. Because that's their thing, like making it harder for people to vote. Well, a lot of people think vote by mail is, oh, you're, you're mailing it back. The biggest piece of it is just getting the information into somebody's hands with the ballot. It blows my mind. We have to create, it's like our local Democratic Party has to raise the money to print out sample ballots. And then, you know, mailing it costs money or getting it into people's hands right when they're walking in to vote. That's just not good voter access. I mean, so the way that it works in my state and I've lived in, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Tennessee. I went to college in Ohio and now I live on the West Coast, obviously. So I've done voting in lots of different ways, right? And this is by far the easiest, right? Like if I had to, you know, pick up my kid from school and then like rush to go to some ballot place, like it would be really, really hard. Yeah. Right. And I couldn't imagine, you know, people who are working multiple jobs and, you know, single parents or our voting system is very ableist too. It's nice having that ballot come to you weeks before you can just fill it in and you don't have to pay for, this is something that's new for us. You don't even have to pay for postage. Wow. That's incredible. And and you know what? You hit the nail on the head in terms of that voter access. When I go to the polls in my wealthier neighborhoods, people are strolling in all day long. You know, it's like there's, you know, yeah, there's peak time in the morning and the evening, but like it's just pretty steady because they have jobs that they can leave and come and go. And then I'll tell you in my working class neighborhoods, it is, you know, filled in the morning and filled at night. It's it's definitely much harder for them to work around their schedule to come and vote. So we have to find ways that people can, you know, it's, it's about, you know, race, class and gender, ableism, that we can find ways that more people can vote easily. Yeah, just, you know, not to, to stay on this topic too long, but I just remember when I was in college, you know, I waited tables and I went to school full time, right? Like I couldn't imagine, you can't just leave your shift at a restaurant, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I went to school full time and waited through college. I mean, if you have a double shift, you can't go. You can't leave, right? And, you know, just thinking about we want more young people to be involved in this process. Geez, they've got student loans to pay off. They've got, they've got to wait tables, right? And and you know what? Speaking of young young people, what we've seen this year, which I didn't see in years past, is an incredible outpouring of high schoolers and college students who are volunteering on our campaign. I don't know what has happened, but we had over 150 high school volunteers knocking thousands of doors this summer. It was amazing. And I'm feeling very hopeful and really excited about our future because in the past, I've seen a lot of apathy. And this year, the students were just rocking and rolling and really involved. So there's good news out there. I love that. And this is something I've been wanting to talk to you about. I think it was this spring. There is a, a mass shooting in Virginia, Virginia Beach. 
And I know something very specific happened with the Republican leadership there. What happened there? Can you tell me? And, and what are people on the ground saying and thinking about it? Well, like I mentioned before, when I ran in 2017, you could, I'm in the suburbs of Richmond, you really couldn't talk about guns. It was just one of those touchy subjects. You didn't know where people were at. It was just didn't poll well. Not like I had any polls. It was such a small campaign, but you didn't talk about guns. And I think, you know, between Parkland and then the mass shootings in Virginia Beach, it totally shifted the landscape. Moms Demand Action, you know, women and moms getting involved in the movement has, as you know, know, really spread in our communities. But moreover, I think that has made a space where now this is one of our top issues. Uh, In fact, I'll be coming out with a commercial very soon in which we'll be directly talking about my experience as a mom. And in the the commercial literally comes from what I told my team was that, you know, I have a seven and a nine-year-old. And when I put them on the bus in the morning, you know, I don't worry about like whether they did their homework or or whether they're going to get in trouble. I worry whether they're going to come home. And I'm worried about what's going to happen at their schools. And that's been you know something that has impacted all of our lives. And I think through this experience, we know that we we are ready to make true progress in terms of, of gun legislation. What happened here in Virginia, though, was right after the mass shooting in Virginia Beach, our governor called a special session in the summer. And put forward nine bills that were bills that we've put up many times before, and they always die in subcommittee. They were really straightforward, common sense gun laws in terms of like red flag laws that would protect people from suicide or domestic violence, um, harm to themselves. We're talking about expanded universal background checks, really straightforward legislation. The special session was shut down within 90 minutes by the Republicans, didn't even let these bills get heard. And honestly, we were shocked because we've seen that across both parties that, you know, the majority of people are ready to make some real common sense changes. And that was shut down by the other side. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, they said something publicly like their public statement was like, it's too soon. I think, you know, I think there were a couple Republicans who would have liked to have bills heard and would have considered it. But then there are people who are in their seats that don't ever have to be worried about getting voted out that have the power that said this is we're not going to touch this because they're worried about their base or their a lot of them are getting, you know, support from the gun lobby. I think that's a big part of it. And so it was it was not going to happen. And honestly, we thought they'd at least give us some time to have have people have their voices heard people's lives who've been affected by the gun violence. And I think one piece that we also have to remember is that the mass shootings, I mean, have totally devastated our communities. But, you know, I hear from, you know, we're we're in the suburbs of Richmond City. And the month before the shooting, there was a, a seven-year-old girl who was shot dead by a random bullet. So you know, in a public park. I mean, so that everyday gun violence, you know, we have to remember that too, that we have to think about not just about the mass shootings, but the fact that we have people living in communities dealing with everyday gun violence all the time. Yeah. You know, I was just talking about that with someone the other day is that, you know, we often talk about the mass shootings, which are important, which are also scary, but statistically you've got domestic violence, Right. Guns used in domestic violence. You have suicides. You have, you know, accidental shootings. So many ways that gun violence affects lives. And I think that when we get to the point where people 
are afraid that their children may not come home from school or from the park. Like, you know, we need some new leadership. I mean, seriously, I, I can't I just don't understand sometimes where people are just OK with the status quo and also live with the fact that a lot of Americans are afraid that their kids may not come home due to gun violence. Well, I think all of us feel this this shift in our lives. You know, I feel it, but I hear from my constituents that, you know, if they're in a movie theater and something happens in a corner of the movie theater, they have panic attacks because they're like, is there a shooting? Who is that person? You know, people don't feel safe in their places of worship. I mean, this is this is the lives we're living now. And it is time that we, you know, take a stab. We have to make these changes. You know, we can't be creating schools that are locked down and and fortified. That's not the kind of life we want to live in America. And and the majority of Americans want uh, gun violence prevention. So another thing that I love about your candidacy, and we've talked about this before, is the fact that you are a mom and you're a woman running for office. And I was just wondering, what would you tell any woman out there who's a mother who thinks, you know, I have to wait till my kids are out of the house or I have to wait till this certain time in my life to run for office? What would you say to them? Well, I would say go for it. Definitely. You know, this is something I never expected to do, but it has been so fulfilling. But I will say that one thing I've learned through this process about being a mom and being a woman in political life is that this is really just not sustainable, that we have to create ways for more and different types of folks to get into office. And the way the system is set up right now, it really isn't accessible. I've broken down some barriers, but this is just not sustainable. I, I you know, I have somebody at, at home can help me out, but, you know, we're losing retirement, we're losing money. I'm not really in an economic position to normally do this. And so I see the barriers to most regular folk to run for office. And honestly, I've been trying to mentor other women and people of color to run for office. And just like you said, when push comes to shove and I'm like, here's an opportunity, they're like, well, you know, I'm a single mom and let me wait till he's 17. Or, you know, I can't afford to do that. I'm finishing up my schooling. And you know, it's easy to say go for it, but we really don't have the structures in place to make sure that, you know, we can support these types of candidates. When I was running for office in 17, all of us women, we worked really close together and we talked about, you know, one of the biggest issues was childcare. We didn't have the money to pay for babysitters or pay for nannies while we were running for office. And that was a huge impediment. We've, you know, things have changed that now I think at the federal level, at least you can, you know, use your campaign money for childcare, but at the state level, that would still be a big no-no. And so we have to find ways to have people who wouldn't normally be able to run, run for office. So your election's coming up soon, right? It's just a few weeks away. So what do you need from people to help you win? From listeners and, you know, from people on the ground in your state? I, I, I definitely need financial support. If you're not close, you know, I need people to knock doors, but if you're not nearby, knocking doors is the way that you get people to vote. So knocking doors and volunteers. But if you can send a postcard or if you can send a check, that's what's going to make a difference because, you know, your money goes to reaching out to voters. And that's what I need to do in an off-off year election is let people know that there's an election and who I am and that we need them to come out and vote. Well, Deborah Rodman, thank you so much for everything you've done, the sacrifices you've made to run for office. And I wish you well, and I will support you in any way I can. So, you know, good luck to you. And thank you. No, thank you so much. And in a podcast like this, you know, Women's Voices, you you've you've filled a niche that is going to you know change people's lives. So I really appreciate you giving me the time to speak to you today. The Electorette is produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. 
In fact, everything about the Electorette is independently produced and managed, from the recording to the audio production, graphics and social media. I do it all. And I'm not bragging. I have a small budget, and it's a labor of love for me. Please consider supporting the Electorette on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash electorette. That's patreon.com slash electorette. Also, stay tuned because I'll be back next week with an all-new episode. Thank you so much again for listening, and thank you so much for your support. 